Good morning, Marvin, and welcome to the Rokar Paleo Show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. Good morning, Mark. How are you today? Wonderful. Thank you. And I trust you both are suitably wonderfully well as well. Doing very well. Nice here in sunny San Diego. Yep. Excellent. Same here in Austin, uh, cold uh, but sunny. <laughs> so, Marvin, uh, you are both certified in internal medicine, gastroenterologist, and the diplomat of the American Board of Integrative Medicine, which you will explain that later. But let's talk about you a uh, little bit. Um, can you tell us about your professional background and how you came to where you are now? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I, I, did, I went to medical school and uh, decided to do internal medicine and specialize in gastroenterology, which is basically the, um, the science of the digestive tract. So I became a specialist in the digestive tract and uh, learned how to do colonoscopies and endoscopies. And along the lines, after I uh, uh, started working in my first job, which was as assistant professor at Johns Hopkins University, I um, felt that there was something missing from how we practice medicine. And um, along the along the ways, uh, discovered integrative medicine and uh, Dr. Andrew Weil, who's a pioneer in the field. And uh, I decided to uh, enroll in his fellowship program. And so while actively practicing, I did a fellowship in integrative medicine. It's a two-year fellowship. And so I became specialized in that field as well and uh, now uh, board certified in that uh, field as well. And uh, now I have the privilege of being one of the uh, few uh, gastroenterologists in the country that are integrative gastroenterologists. Okay, so uh, since we have that word there, could you explain in integrative? So integ integrative uh, means uh, basically, to put it simply, taking the best of both worlds and combining it together. So, you know, you understand and appreciate uh, some of the uh, other aspects of health and wellness and mind-body connection, herbals and botanicals and uh, other complementary uh, therapies. And uh, you combine that uh, with uh, traditional medicine uh, according to whatever the patient's needs are. So, you know, if somebody has heartburn, you know, you make sure you do the appropriate investigations for uh, heartburn and talk to them about, you know, lifestyle management and what treatments they prefer, and if they prefer using more natural methods, then I'm happy to use more natural methods because oftentimes that's uh, better for them in the long run. So integrative basically means integrating all aspects of, uh, you know, health and wellness into one person and looking at the whole person, the whole body together, which is often something we miss when we, uh, you know, are practicing medicine in a regular busy practice, and it's not something that's too often focused on uh, in our training. Right. So does that make your life more difficult because you have to combine <laughs> the, the Western style of medicine with the, the more, um, as you say, alternative? It can be a little mentally challenging, that's for sure. It can definitely be mentally challenging. But once you kind of do it for a while and you kind of get the hang of it, then, you know, I cre you create your own uh, algorithms in your head and it's kind of becomes the new normal for you just like anything else so in other words you're a geek doctor 
<laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I had one of my uh, one of my older teachers uh, long ago uh, told me that you know uh, you don't stop learning about medicine once you become a doctor. Hmm. The best yeah. doctors are those that never stop learning, and that's what I found to be the most true. And I remember that as like. Maybe 15 years ago, somebody told me that, and uh, it's very true. So I'm always reading, learning, even if it has nothing to do with anything that I have background in. I, you know, I, I read about quantum physics and all kinds of other stuff. Right, right. Uh, from what I heard from other professionals, is, um, you typically learn more from your patients than what you learn from your books, right? Right, right. So, you know, a difficult patient comes along with a lot of uh, history or some unique background, then uh, you can look at that as, oh, I don't know what to do. This is too hard. Or you can look at it as a challenge and learn from the patient. Yeah. yeah That's which, how I look at it. Which in turn allows you to learn and grow at the same exactly. time. Exactly. Yeah. So you call yourself the gut MD. Can you <laughs> explain that? Well, <clears throat> these days, you know, <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> um, these days, uh, the gut microbiome is really at the center stage of health and medicine. There's so many associations with uh, diseases and conditions that um, stem from chronic inflammation and imbalance of the gut microbiome. So I find it a very uh, interesting, exciting, and unique time to actually be a gastroenterologist because. It's our organ that is actually uh, able to affect so many different kinds of uh, health conditions. And so, you know, uh, essentially every gastroenterologist uh, could be considered the uh, ultimate type of physician because they're able to uh, understand uh, how the gut works and modulate the microbiome in order to help people get better. So right. gut... Gut MD, healthy gut MD, or uh, you know, I just uh, basically using uh, wellness medicine uh, in combination with the principles of uh, gut health to help make people better. Thank you. For uh, our listeners that are not familiar with the term, can you explain the microbiome? Oh yeah. So the microbiome, uh, basically, we are not human beings. Our our majority of the cells on our body are made up of microbes or different microorganisms, whether it's a bacteria, a virus, or a fungus. Um, inside of our digestive tract, which is what we, what we refer to as the gut, there are over 100 trillion different microorganisms. And so they outnumber our human cells 10 to 1 and their DNA composition uh, outnumbers our human DNA composition. Hmm. And so really we are made up of primarily microbes and microbial DNA. It's kind of fascinating. And what's even more fascinating is that these hundred trillion microorganisms that live inside of our gut micro uh, live inside of our gut um, are only 10 to 20% similar from the next guy. So me and you, we may have a similar number of microbes inside of our gut, but we're only 10 to 20% similar. Whereas if you looked at our chromosomes, you know, all human beings have chromosomes and genes for the same things, you know, hair, 
you know, nose, lips, mouth, ears, you know, those kind of things. That's why we all come out as human beings when we're born. Um, but inside of our gut microbiome, uh, it's a totally different ecosystem. Everybody has basically a signature. Right. So basically, we're just a life support for all these bacteria. Exactly. They, they're they actually the smart ones. They found a great host that it can eat and keep them safe. And uh, in exchange, they help us. But uh, if we do some of the things that aren't so good in life and health, uh, have too many bad habits, then um, they'll still support us. But some of the bad guys will start predominating. And the bad guys are maybe a little more reckless. Maybe they don't care as much about uh, longevity as the good guys do. <laughs> so what, what, <clears throat> what's going on? Um, I know it's kind of sound a little childish, but uh, sometimes that's what it takes to understand. There's a big war going on inside our gut between the good guys and the bad guys. Can you uh, tell us what the bad guys are and what they could do if they are allowed to overcome the good guys? Well, one of the biggest concepts, I guess, uh, of what the bad guys can do uh, when they start predominating and, and beating up on the good guys is that they create inflammation. <laughs> and so, you know, all these bacteria produce uh, different, uh, what we call metabolites, which are basically byproducts of their functions. And so some of these metabolites can be pro-inflammatory. And at the root of pretty much most diseases, whether it's cancer or heart disease or diabetes, is inflammation. Now, where that inflammation settles in, whether it settles in in your joints, it settles in in your brain, it settles in in your heart, that's different. And that could be due to a wide variety of different factors. Um, but uh, inflammation is at the root of all that. And so um, that's one of the things that the bad guys do the most, that the good guys uh usually try to fight against. And the, the, the battle analogy is actually a good one because it's something that I often use in my office practice too to explain to people. All right. So, for example, one of the bad guys that a lot of people um, unfortunately um, aware of would be candida yeast. Right. What does it do and how does it overcome the other guys? Uh, you can... I, I think of uh, candida kind of, uh, you know, like you can think of as kind of like a leech on your body. You know, it's just a guy that's uh, there uh, uh, annoying and just sucking the life out of the environment, basically, you know. Um, uh, if you think about it, um, if you put a, you know, bowl of water out on your back deck on a hot summer, a su a summer sunny day and you leave it out there, uh, for uh, for a few days, what happens? What grows? It's, you know, you get kind of that pond scummy, moldy, you know, fungus type of film on the top of the water and the water is ruined. You definitely don't want to drink that water. Right. And so um, that's, what, that's how I kind of think of uh, yeast, you know, it kind of throws off the balance. It's kind of uh, overgrows, you know, yeast and mold can grow on a lot of different surfaces and they can throw off the whole ecosystem and uh, upset the environment. And uh, well, you see sometimes is when there's an imbalance of uh, some of the good guys being lower in levels is that you may see some predominance of yeast grow up because yeast are kind of like opportunistic um, organisms. So when nothing else wants to be there, hey, look what happened. The yeast are there. <laughs> 
Right. So there's uh, there's the name Candida yeast, but uh, what it is is really a, a fungus, right? Yeah. It's a mushroom. It's a tiny mushroom. Uh, what? Uh, but, but but people shouldn't think that they have mushrooms growing inside of them because that <laughs> that would probably freak too many people out. <laughs> no, little, tiny tiny mushrooms. Um, <laughs> what what would encourage them to develop? I mean, I know the answer, but I, I want to hear it from you. Um, obviously, uh, God in balance. But how do you create this imbalance by what you? by what you take in, what medicine, whatever? So um, it can be from a variety of reasons. Sometimes people take a lot of antibiotics. Um, so, you know, uh, antibiotics uh, bombard the uh, gut microbiome. And as a result, uh, you're killing off the bacteria that may be causing you a problem in your body, perhaps elsewhere. But you're also killing off the good bacteria that are living in your gut. And that's keeping the balance. And so... Um, uh, in that setting, uh, you know, yeast may want to predominate. Eating a diet that's high in sugar and processed foods um, is also uh, a big component of that. Um, uh, a lot of things can actually influence the composition of the microbiome. It's also not just diet. It's exercise. It's how much you're sleeping. We know that even alterations in circadian rhythms can actually cause imbalances of the gut microbiome. Okay. Um, exercise, uh, you know, people, uh, athletes have a more diverse microbiome as well. Uh, stress is a big one. We know that people that are chronically stressed um, also can have imbalances in the gut microbiome. So it's, it's a wide combination of factors. Diet is a big one, you know, uh, you know, sugar and people talk about gluten and things like that as being contributory to, you know, intestinal permeability and imbalances in the gut microbiome. But, uh, you know, I talk about that often, but I also like emphasizing like the other um, aspects of lifestyle medicine, because that's also very important to remember. Yeah, one thing that just popped in my mind is that, and I'm going to sound like a, an old French guy, but that's what I am. Um, <laughs> in, in the old days, we were allowed, not only an, allowed, but we were encouraged to play outside. Go outside, play in the yeah. dirt, get, get dirty. That's why I'm a dirty old man now. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's... Obviously, um, well, in my opinion, there's definitely a correlation between a healthy gut because you get exposed to a lot of different bacteria from your environment, whereby nowadays uh, kids are sanitized, they are kept inside. You know, well, Can you explain what's your take on that? So uh, that is also true, um, is that we... You know, I, there's a whole history to how we treated, how we have been treating bugs or, or bacteria. I, uh, back before all of us were born, uh, you know, when we discovered that these microorganisms can cause infection, then everybody was basically on a must kill the bug, must kill the bug, you know, uh, rampage. And so that was the blossoming of the antibiotics era. And now we're learning and realizing that, yes, we do have antibiotics that can be life-saving. I mean, if you have a pneumonia and you can't breathe, then you're going to need antibiotics. Otherwise, you might die. 
Um, but it's the overuse of antibiotics. Not only the overuse, but actually the infiltration of these antibiotics into our food supply is even more concerning. I, the book chapter that I wrote um, in, uh, in uh, the textbook of integrative environmental medicine, I was looking at the um, effect of environmental chemicals um, on the gut microbiome, and one of the articles that I came across um, indicated that uh, up to uh, 120 grams of antibiotics on an annual basis are ingested in the American diet. Wow. So that's 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 kind of crazy if you think about it. Yeah. And uh, it's it's this uh, realizing that these are the things that are happening, and that the microbiome is related to uh, health and disease is now starting the um, blossoming of the probiotic era. So it's kind of funny how we go from must kill all the bacteria to now let's eat bacteria, let's have fermented foods, let's try symbiotics, probiotics, prebiotics, and now this whole thing is coming about. about. And now uh, there's a big movement towards uh, spore-based probiotics. So you're getting some of these uh, um, uh, organisms in the spore form so that they're higher in concentration in the gut. And these are basically uh, kind of uh, re-inoculating your system with uh, organisms that you may have been exposed to way back when, if you were a little bit more dirty and playing outdoors and things like that. Right, right. You forgot one thing, fecal transfer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So now not, not only are we not wanting to kill the bugs as much, we're wanting to actually put other people's stool inside of our bodies. You know, it's kind of crazy, right? <laughs> a so, fecal transplant uh, is basically like a massive probiotic enema. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, uh, Let's go back to the, um, and we, we should probably also let people know that our gut is really the headquarters for our immune system, right? Yeah, over 70% of the immune system is in the gut. Okay, so if we, going back to what I said earlier, if we get down and dirty and, you know, let's not, we, we wash our hands because our mom wants us to, but we don't sanitize, we don't, we don't take a, you know, uh, like if it was a biohazard kind of thing. But, so uh -huh. we carry, we carry, we're bringing those bacteria into our body, and we, in the process, we develop a stronger immune system because our system learns to deal with them very early on. Nowadays, we are much more sensitive to all of these bugs because we have never been exposed <clears throat> exposed to that. Can you can you tell us your point of view on that? Yeah, I agree. You know, and if you go to some other countries where they are not as over sanitized, they kind of uh, laugh at us from America about some of the things that we do. I mean, I, I did a rotation at a missionary hospital in India um, a few, few years back when I was in training still. And, you know, we'd have our little hand sanitizers uh, with us and they would always be laughing at us like, what are you guys from America doing? We don't need this stuff over here. We don't get sick like you guys are all worried you're going to get sick, you know. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the more resilient your microbiome is, resilient means strong. You know, you have a lot of strong links in the chain. The more mm -hmm. resilient your microbiome is, the more resistant you may be to a variety of insults, such as, you know, true infections that can actually make you sick. Same thing goes for, you know, uh, environmental exposures or toxins. So 
you know, I could have three people and I could have one person that's exposed to a toxin, another person exposed to the same toxin, a third person exposed to the same toxin. One guy totally has no problem at all. The other guy eh, feels a little bit of some symptoms. And the third person gets drastically ill. And it's the exact same dose of the exact same toxin, but what's different? I mean, the microbiome may be more resilient and may be able to detoxify or help in the detoxification. Yes, it's a little oversimplified because there are genetics and other things involved uh, as well. But, you know, the microbiome does play a key role in that as well. And even, you know, there are studies showing how the microbiome um, can uh, help detoxify arsenic in the water, for example, and how if you take a certain probiotic, um, if you're deficient in that and, uh, uh, organism, that it can actually help improve that detoxification process. So it's very, uh, very important. <clears throat> Would you say that the infamous Monte Montezuma, what is the... Uh, Mon Mon Monsanto? No, Montezuma <laughs> disease, you know, when you go to... Oh, like, <laughs> right? Is yeah. that the case of... Being exposed to bacteria is that you're not familiar with and your body just goes crazy and, and gets sick, right? Yeah, it could also be, you know, sometimes the viruses uh, run through your system and, uh, you know, no matter who you are or what your microbiome is, you're going to get sick if you eat it. I mean, like if, if, uh, if, I, if I say uh, I have the best microbiome on the planet, everybody should come to me for their stool transplant and then I eat uh, contaminated uh, food with salmonella, I'm probably going to get sick. You know, some of these bad guys are just so invasive that they, they tear up the system. And you have some interesting bad guys like Clostridium difficile, for example. And that's a guy that uh, sounds like uh, it can choose when it wants to be bad or not. I mean, I may have Clostridium difficile living inside my gut right now, but I'm not sick from it. But if I happen to take antibiotics for a sinus infection, for example, then I may lower down some of the species that are keeping it in check. And now that Clostridium difficile wants to start making toxin because his um, whole system isn't being suppressed as much uh, as it was before. Right. Uh, and, and we take an antibiotic then to what we think kill this Clostridium difficile, but what we also see uh, in, in many instances is that even after you take this antibiotic to treat the Clostridium difficile, the guy's still living there in the gut microbiome. He doesn't go away. Right. He just becomes quiet. Right, right. So uh, to use an analogy, uh, our gut uh, is like a neighborhood um, or a city. There will be a good, nice neighborhood. There'll be bad neighborhood. You don't want to go there, but as long as the police is there to keep him in check, everything is okay. But if we kill the police, then the bad guy is going to take over, right? Exactly. That's a great analogy. The other analogy I also have uh, when I explain to people about the gut microbiome is that um, it's not always in the name of the organism. Like if you say, uh, I have such and such organism in my gut. Oh man, I read an article and I read that this organism is really bad. What do I do to kill it? You know, this is how people think. Yeah. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to do anything because the analogy I give is that say I am sitting in a room with you and 10 people walk in the door and you learn that those 10 people just got out of jail because they all killed somebody. Should you be nervous that you have 10 killers in the room with you? 
the knee-jerk reaction for most people is, yes, we should be very nervous. There are 10 killers in the room. Then, I, then if I say, well, what if I told you that while all these 10 people were in jail, they all became holy men, and now they're men of God, and they converted, and they are very religious, and they're helping people, and they're all about charity, and, and, and whatnot. Would that change your mind? And inevitably, everybody says, well, yes, that would change my mind. So it's not necessarily in the name because the name of the person is the same, whether he was a criminal or now he's a holy man. Mm-hmm. It's in what those people are doing. So it's the mm-hmm. same concept in the gut microbiome. It's not as important as, as which microorganism you have and how many of which different microorganisms you have. It's what are those guys doing together in the system? How is the ecosystem functioning? Right. Is inflammation being created? Are, are good things like short-chain fatty acids being created? Are vitamins being made? These are kind of the, uh, the, the questions that should be asked. Right. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. Um, another concern, which is uh, definitely a modern concern, and it relates back to the uh, excess antibiotics in our water, for example, or excess use, is that we are more and more res- um, no, uh, bugs actually are more and more resistant to antibiotics, right? That's correct. Can you explain that fact? These guys learn from each other too. So, you know, um, uh, these microbes, uh, just like we can learn a new skill, you read a book, now you're an expert uh, on this topic because you read five books on a certain subject. Um, these microbes can change and adapt too. So if they're continually seeing antibiotics, um, uh, especially even on a low-grade basis, doesn't have to be, you know, it could be coming in through your food supply or, or whatever other route, um, they can learn how to survive in that atmosphere. So that's what, that's what resistance is. And they can also actually exchange genetic material with each other. So you could have one guy over here saying, hey, Hey, buddy, I have the genes that can help you fight this antibiotic. Do you want it? Yeah, sure, I want it. Okay, here you go. Now it's got it. So these, these microbes can actually exchange genetic material, which is uh, another fascinating uh, component of this whole system. Kind of like French kissing, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, they say, um, I, I, I don't know if I take it, Take it seriously, but say that um, people that French kiss tend to have a stronger immune system, right? Cross, yeah. cross pollinate each other. Well, there there are thousands of bacteria that are exchanged when you do that. So, you know, I don't know. Hopefully, you French kiss somebody with a good oral microbiome. <laughs> yeah, only a French guy would uh, would approach this uh, discussion. Okay. <laughs> Going back to serious business, uh, there is um, there's concerns, especially around hospital, that you you know you get your treatment, blah blah, whatever reason you go there, and then you're going to get this really that bug that's really resistant to everything. Um, can you can you talk about this? Well, I don't remember the name of the bug, but it's a specific type of. Or, or use something or... Maybe MRSA or MRSA or yeah, VRE. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I mean, uh, being there are, you know, such types of infections uh, called hospital acquired infections. And um, uh, this is one setting where, you know, uh, we understand that it's, it's good to um, be a little bit more on the cleanly side because we have other people whose health uh, are at risk. So, yeah, it's good to be out and um, running around and playing in the dirt and, and doing yoga, you know, on the beach and being out in the environment. Um, but uh, the hospital is often where you have uh, sick and vulnerable people. So you have elderly people, there's pregnant uh, women, their little children. And so their immune systems may be, uh, you know, a little bit lower at baseline due to a variety of factors. Some people are on chemotherapy because they have cancer. So, you know, their immune system is weakened and we don't want to endanger them. So in those situations, you know, people are often put in a, a, what we call an isolation room so that they are not, uh, you know, mixed in with the general population so that an infection they may have doesn't spread and vice versa. And you usually wear gloves and and a gown and things like that so that you don't spread the infection. Now, what, what, what you could think of doing differently for yourself is, you know, often they have the Purell uh, or, you know, one of those uh, automatic, you know, waterless uh, hand sanitizers. And, some, and often right next to that same machine is soap and water. So I generally use the soap and water um, because these uh, other types of hand sanitizers often have other chemicals that can – uh, maybe be more disruptive to your health and your skin and, and things like that. So I often will just use the soap and water if I have the choice. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been proven that soap and water uh, kills 90-something 90, 90, 90 percent of uh, bacteria. Yeah. Um, one thing that there's a couple more things that I'm, I'm interested to know more is how – can you explain to us what Crohn's disease and IBS is? So Crohn's disease, <laughs> um, uh, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis often go together, hand in hand, in a discussion, and they're lumped together uh, uh, as inflammatory bowel diseases. Mm -hmm. IBS is irritable bowel syndrome and is a completely different condition. So uh, Crohn's disease is a condition, and uh, so is ulcerative colitis. Basically, the immune system is attacking itself. So it's in, uh, in the category of an autoimmune condition, and the immune system has decided that it's going to attack uh, the digestive tract. And so in Crohn's disease, you can have um, ulcerations uh, and inflammation. You can develop strictures and fistula and things like that anywhere in the entire gastrointestinal tract. The difference with ulcerative colitis is that it's only confined to the colon. Okay. And so these are inflammatory conditions. Uh, irritable bowel syndrome is uh, not an inflammatory condition. It's a condition where people can have symptoms like abdominal pain or bloating, uh, fluctuating bowel habits, whether it's constipation or diarrhea or a mix of both uh, and uh, things like that. Uh, some may think of it as a prototype uh, condition for an imbalance of the gut microbiome because perhaps a lot of these symptoms are occurring as a result of that. It's not an inflammatory condition. So if you, 
do a colonoscopy on somebody uh, and you see ulcerations, you really couldn't say that your problem is irritable bowel syndrome. It's possible they may have an overlap of both, and sometimes people with inflammatory bowel can have irritable bowel, but it's a differentiation that needs to be made. Okay, okay. So how do we deal with each one of them? What's the best way? So uh, it often depends on the severity and uh, how, how bad the inflammation is. Um, uh, often when people have an inflammatory bowel disease, they're taking medications to reduce the inflammation. Um, and help heal the lining. I also talk to people about, um, you know, more lifestyle-based medicines that can be um, a complementary to, uh, you know, whatever treatment they're on, um, including looking at kinds of diets, uh, making sure they uh, clean up their uh, food. A lot of times people uh, don't have, an, have a clue that, uh, you know, that the fast food that they're eating could be contributing to their uh, inflammation in the gut. I, I actually have some patients who flare only when they're on vacation. Otherwise, they're generally well controlled. And when they're on vacation, what are they doing? They're enjoying themselves maybe a little bit too much, uh, drinking more alcohol, eating more foods that they know they probably shouldn't be eating, but they're on vacation. So they do that. You know, um, so uh, diet definitely plays a role. Stress plays a role. Uh, a lot of people um, can flare when they have uh, a lot of stress, whether it's a life stress or something happens at work or they're not sleeping well enough, causing more stress, combination of a lot of different things. So we talk about those and there are some, you know, antimicrobial, um, excuse me, uh, anti-inflammatory um, type of herbs and supplements like turmeric and, um, you know, boswellia and things like that, that we can sometimes add into the regimen that can uh, help reduce uh, the inflammation. And there are, you know, uh, probiotics uh, and spore probiotics that we can use um, that have been studied in inflammation in the gut and intestinal permeability to help heal the gut as well. So there are a variety of things we can do. If somebody has irritable bowel syndrome, uh, we may not be so focused on uh, inflammation, inflammation uh, in that setting, but we may be more focused on trying to help reduce their symptoms. And so oftentimes diet plays a big role in that too. Um, uh, uh, there's a group of foods called FODMAPs, which are basically highly fermentable um, sugars and sugar alcohols that occur in a variety of different foods. And uh, they can cause gas, bloating, abdominal pain, you know, diarrhea, things like that. And so uh, educating people about that can be helpful. Um, I love using uh, different kinds of herbs like ginger and peppermint, fennel, things like that can really help uh, uh, soothe the digestive tract. Mm -hmm. uh, as a chef, you could even uh, tell people maybe how they can involve some of these uh, ingredients in the foods that they make because I talk to people about that as well, you know. Um, if you start in integrating some of these ingredients into your food supply, um, then you may be able to help your symptoms as well. Yeah, we uh, in France, we use herbs uh, in a lot of, of our cooking, fresh herbs. Uh, but uh, some of the, the one you mentioned are typically more used in the Indian cooking. Mm. Right? Yeah, fennel, fennel yeah, yeah, turmeric, ginger. Ginger, all of that, yeah. Yeah. Um, so maybe you can teach me uh, to use <laughs> Maybe I'm biased, uh, I guess. <laughs> that's fine, absolutely. Um, another fascination for me is the link between the gut health and the brain health. Can you talk to that effect? 
Yeah, this is a very fascinating uh, part of uh, medicine these days. Um, we know that the gut has its own nervous system. So a lot of people don't even know that. It's called the enteric nervous system or the ENS. And so, uh, you know, I remember in science lab when I was a student that they, they would um, separate the digestive tract and you would see that it will squeeze and move on its own when it's not connected to any brain or anything like that. So it's kind of actually pretty cool. We know that there are more uh, nerves in the gut than in the spinal cord. So think mm. about that for a second. That's kind of fascinating. Mm. And that essentially every neurotransmitter that's found in the brain is also produced to some degree in the gut. Yeah. 90 to 95% of serotonin that we take these medications for to improve depression and anxiety, 90 to 95% of serotonin is stored in the gut. And so is a, definitely a connection uh, with uh, this information superhighway between the gut and the brain through the vagus nerve, where um, I explain to people it's just kind of like a, a up and down uh, exchange of information constantly throughout the day, kind of like the Autobahn in, in, uh, in Germany, you know, it's always something zipping around, zipping around. And so uh, instantaneously sometimes when they're, there's a, a gut sensation. You actually see on MRI scans that there uh, is alterations in, in brain function. And to, to even kind of take this to the next level, you know, that the, uh, in science these days, there's many, many connections being developed um, between imbalances of the gut microbiome and Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's disease. And so we're seeing that uh, being elucidated more and more. Uh, one of the uh, famous experiments I like to tell people about is that it's not the nicest of experiments, but they uh, had uh, a baby monkey that was born and separated the monkey from its mother um, uh, shortly after birth. They looked at the microbiome in that monkey before that separation and then after the separation. Mm -hmm. And what they found was that the microbiome of the monkey shifted so that it had more of a particular kind of bacteria known as Prevotella, that uh, was predominating in the gut microbiome. And that microorganism is associated with adult mental health disease, like depression, anxiety, OCD. And so uh, this is a very fascinating connection that's showing how the gut and the brain can be connected, that alterations in the microbiome can actually cause neurologic or mental health problems. So when you have that gut feeling, that's your stomach telling you something, right? It's, it's thinking for itself, right? Yeah, it's the real deal. <laughs> uh, well, I've worked a few times with uh, autistic children and ADHD uh, children as well. And uh, I've noticed, and I was um, surprised, but I, I mean, I've read about it, but I, you know, I observed it myself the the uh, improvement in their state of mind when you improve the diet, when you change the diet. Yeah. To that? Uh, the, there are certainly, you know, a particular, particular kind of foods that can. So we, we already talked about that the food can actually affect the gut microbiome. So that's how that connection can be made. If you are eating a lot of pro-inflammatory foods, a lot of fast foods, maybe you have some sensitivity to some foods and, that contributes to intestinal permeability, 
um, or leaky gut, uh, then you could perhaps get inflammation in the nervous system or the brain, and that could affect uh, behavior. Certainly. So uh, in children, sometimes we see that, you know, if you get rid of dairy or gluten or eggs or soy or, you know, one of these high offenders, um, that their um, symptoms may improve potentially. Right, right. The problem is that for these kids, uh, those kind of food, they, they typically have a very narrow diet and it really, uh, they are hooked on these foods mentally and emotionally. If you yeah. take them away, they're literally they scream murder. It's, it's, it's perhaps related to this this dopamine release, you know, because that's kind of how uh, the same concept of why sometimes they say you pulled an all-nighter. Say you didn't sleep for 48 hours. Right. And uh, that's a stress on the body. And, you yeah. wait, and now you're on the 48th hour and you come down to the kitchen and you have the choice between uh, a bowl of fresh berries or a bagel with cream cheese or a donut, let's say, mm. you know that the berries are better for you. Right. You know you should eat the berries. Yeah. But more often than not, you will gravitate to the stuff that is not healthy for you, the donut or the bagel with cream cheese, because you just want to get that feel-good feeling. And so that's what happens. You, you eat that donut, I mean, temporarily, because afterwards you may feel sick from <laughs> eating it. Um, but temporarily, you get that surge of sugar and dopamine, and you just feel good. You feel at ease. And that, that could be part of the process. Sugar is 10 times more addictive than some drugs like cocaine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's what typically we call comfort food. Um, exactly. So you you're saying that comfort food actually is actually bad for you. Comfort food can be like a drug, yeah. You should make yeah. the comfort food uh, something healthy, then it'll be uh, a, a double win for you. <laughs> yeah, maybe they should come up with a kale ice cream. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, and, and here's a subject that just popped in my head because it's, um, it's very... Um, current, which is glyphosate, uh, yeah. Roundup, Roundup glyphosate, and it seems like it's infecting or it's into everything we eat nowadays, and because it is uh, antibacterial, it damages our gut's health. Can you speak to that? Yeah, so just as the antibiotics can affect the gut microbiome, so can uh, outside toxins and poisons and pesticides and herbicides. Um, so glyphosate is usually uh, the one that we often focus on because everybody knows about Roundup. And so it's basically, you know, it's kind of like another hit to your system. Um, and this is kind of how disease and illness comes about. It's not just, oh, you took one antibiotic once, so that's why you have diabetes. I mean, that you couldn't draw that conclusion. It's you're adding drips in your bucket, drips in your bucket. So you're taking antibiotics, you don't sleep very well, you drink too much alcohol, you spray Roundup all over the place, you're eating non-organic foods. It's just like a hit after hit after hit. Now, all of a sudden, you have a problem. Your bodies have a threshold. They can only withstand so much, and then at some point, something will break down, and then the, then the problem will occur. And so glyphosate is basically like a poison on the system. Not only does it create inflammation and imbalance the microbiome itself, it actually messes up the microbiome of 
the plant that you're eating as well. So we have to think about it that the plants live in soil and they grow in soil and they need certain nutrients and they need certain um, uh, beneficial uh, items in order to grow and be that nice, healthy broccoli that's going to give you all the vitamins that you think you're eating. But if you're spraying that whole thing, the whole crop with the pesticide, like Roundup, for example, you are changing the microbiome of the soil and of the plant. And so I don't know that the nutritional value is exactly the same. It's, uh, we feel that the nutritional value is not the same when you're, when you're eating crops that have been sprayed with these foods. And so that's why we all talk about, you know, planting your own garden, eating organically, you know, things like that, because then you have a little bit more control over the situation and you can at least try to reduce that exposure, reduce one less drop from getting in the bucket. What people don't realize, I was um, born, uh, I was raised partially on the farm, what people don't realize is that the soil is actually a living organism. Yeah. With its, its whole uh, combination of, of bacteria and that makes it more nourishing for the plants. And when uh, Roundup or similar chemicals are sprayed on it, basically they kill the vitality of the soil. And so, and they, they have to, in order to compensate, but they have to add more chemicals yeah. to help the plant grow faster or bigger, which is not healthy and it's definitely not healthy and it's definitely not nourishing. So, um, you know, like you say, we should, uh, we, we do recommend if you can afford it to eat organic as much as possible and also keep an eye on the, uh, the uh, USDA and make sure they don't mess with that standard mm-hmm. because there are be, there's been attempts for the industry to mess with the standards for organic. So, you know, so they can uh, pour some sludge on the, on, the, on the soil and all sorts of, you know, ugly stuff so um and people should also know you know um if they even if they eat organically some people you know enjoy having a beer once in a while they know that they shouldn't drink too much alcohol but you know it's the one thing that they like to do for fun so they let themselves do that um but these beers and alcoholic beverages uh, are also being infiltrated with glyphosate there's been some articles that i saw in the press uh, lately and in the past uh, where people have measured and um, studied uh, whether or not there's glyphosate in these beverages and they are indeed. So you may think that, you know, uh, it's okay, but uh, it may not be okay. Yeah. I just uh, posted an article uh, yesterday about this uh, 14 kinds of beer that are, yeah, uh, they, they, are, they actually contain glyphosate in them. So yeah, uh, we they do, do need- they- they they do have organic beer too. Not that yeah. not that we're promoting beer here on the show, but if if you have to have one, you might as well try to clean it up a little bit. <laughs> right. Same with wine. Same. Same. Uh, same, same because they spread that on on, on uh, grapes. Same with well, co- so. same with coffee I mean, too. It, actually, coffee is another one we don't think about. Coffee is one of the most heavily sprayed um, plants. And so, um, you know, uh, there are very few actually really clean, legit um, brands of coffee that um, 
are, you know, uh, organic, toxin-free, mold-free, and things like that. Purity coffee is a, an example of one of them that I often, you know, prescribe as a medication to uh, patients uh, or a medical food, basically, I should say, not a medication. But, uh, you know, if you, if you want to have coffee and you want to um, uh, uh, try to avoid uh, extra drips in your bucket, then you might as well have that organic as well because you want to just kind of reduce as many exposures as you can. We're human beings and we live in a human world and there's chemicals in the air you're breathing in your house, whether you like it or not, there's chemicals in the air as soon as you walk out the door, but there's only so much you can do. You can't live in a vacuum bubble, but yeah. if there are things that you can educate yourself about, be knowledgeable about, then you can try to avoid some of those things so that uh, you don't add to the burden. Right, right. The problem with this discussion, of course, we're making people even more paranoid. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're just trying to help. Yeah. <laughs> no, knowledge no, no, knowledge is power. Don't be paranoid. They really are out to get you. <laughs> Especially the bugs. Yeah. Um, okay, so moving along, um, do you want to tell us about the book you're working on, Integrative Gastroenterology? Yeah, so um, when I went through the fellowship in integrative medicine, um, I uh, wrote a book chapter initially in uh, uh, the textbook of integrative environmental medicine. Uh, I believe Ailey Cohen has uh, been on your show before, and she's the, one of the editors of that textbook. And from there, I was offered the opportunity to uh, edit the textbook of integrative gastroenterology. Uh, it's a wild series book. So uh, Andrew Weil is the uh, series editor, um, uh, and Oxford uh, University Press is the publisher, and uh, we've been working on it for about a year, year and a half now, and we're finally finished, and it's in the hands of the publisher. Hopefully it should be coming out um, uh, sometime towards the end of the year, I imagine, and it's really uh, going to be an excellent source uh, of knowledge and information. Um, it'll be a great tool for practitioners um, to learn about the latest in gut health and microbiome research. I also think uh, it'll be a good resource for patients or the general public as well because it's going to have a lot of updates uh, on uh, what some of the latest microbiome research is and uh, perhaps explain um, some of the, the things uh, that they may be experiencing and help them understand about it a little bit more. Mm. And it's a, it's a fascinating and booming field right now. Definitely, for sure. So we're excited to have that come out. All right. And um, you also do talks. Can you tell us about the talks and what you talk about? Yeah, I do a lot of different talks. Um, uh, I was just recently in December in Las Vegas um, uh, at the American Academy for Anti-Aging Medicine Conference. And going back there in May um, to do another talk on integrative approaches to gut health. And um, uh, that's one of the things that I enjoy talking about. Um, you know, there are so few uh, experts in our field uh, with this background and patients can benefit from it so much. And uh, I enjoy the opportunity to just go to these larger conferences and and speak. I'm going to be in Seattle at a personalized medicine uh, conference uh, a little bit later on in the fall. And um, uh, I may be also speaking at, at another major conference in San Diego 
uh, in the coming months as well. So um, I enjoy educating and talking to people about it because when I went on my own wellness journey um, and started learning about uh, integrative medicine and, and gut health, I made a lot of transformations in my own health. And a lot of it was uh, actually none of it was because some other doctor told me that I needed to do this or that. It was all through uh, education and self-knowledge and uh, anybody is capable of learning and uh, it's most important to learn about yourself and your own body and what's going on inside of your body. So um, only way to do that is by learning. And so I figure I can teach a lot more people on a bigger uh, spectrum by uh, speaking at a lot of these uh, major international conferences. Mm. Um, going back to the food part of things, uh, I know there's no such thing as a blanket diet, but what would be a, the best gut-friendly diet out there? So um, that's a great question because my philosophy uh, is that there is no such thing as a universal diet. If all of us are 10 to 20% similar in our gut microbiome composition and we all have maybe different snips of nutritional genetics and things like that, sensitivities uh, to various foods, um, that makes us very unique as far as what may be the optimal diet uh, for each of us. And so that's what I do uh, in my practice is I try to help people figure out what their highly individualized program and nutritional plan should be. None of the tests are 100% perfect. This is a rapidly evolving field. A lot of companies are popping up, you know, uh, almost uh, on a monthly basis. I'm seeing something new. Um, but uh, we have uh, uh, definitely some great tools that we didn't have in the past that can help us understand um, how somebody should eat. And so I use those tools to help uh, create people's uh, highly individualized program. If I didn't have any of that information and somebody wanted, uh, you know, diet advice, I think uh, some of the underlying common themes in all diets are basically to eliminate the highly inflammatory foods, avoid processed foods, packaged foods, uh, reduce, eliminate, uh, you know, sugar exposure, um, focus on, you know, organic, colorful, plenty, uh, uh, colorful variety of vegetables and fruits. And the bottom of your food pyramid should be vegetables and fruits. Um, we want to try to uh, tell people to shoot for at least five to seven serving sizes of vegetables and fruits a day. I usually tell that at, at the beginner stage. And uh, when you uh, start accomplishing that, I try to push people to get more towards seven to nine range. Because the more vegetables and fruits you have, the healthier microbiome uh, you'll be able to cultivate as well. And you want different vegetables and fruits this is the big thing too. You want different foods, a variety of foods. That's what people say that, you know, you should eat seasonally. It's because um, you want to kind of eat what's natural in the environment at the time that you're eating it. Uh, that also will help cultivate a diverse microbiome that is capable of doing different kinds of things. If you say, well, hey, doc, I eat a healthy diet. I eat broccoli for breakfast. I eat it for lunch. and I eat it for dinner. What's wrong with that? Broccoli is good, right? Yeah, it's good, but it's not good when you eat it all the time because all you're doing is basically shifting the population of the microbes in your gut towards these guys that love broccoli and the other guys, they don't get fed as much. So eat a lot of different things. Be adventurous. Try new uh, recipes. Get cookbooks. Do, le learn. Make it fun. 
it's actually uh, uh, a nice experience when you get fresh organic produce and you chop it up yourself and you cook it yourself, you smell all the smells, you taste it as you go along. It becomes an experience for your whole body, I believe. And uh, especially uh, go to the farmer's market <laughs> and buy and eat what is in season. Right. The season, eat in season. A lot of people... They go to supermarket because they have access to everything from everywhere in the world. They think, well, that's the way to go. Um, to a certain thing, it is as long as you stick with organics. But ideally, you should eat in season. So, um, you know, in winter, a lot of citrus feed, um, food. I, I believe that nature or, you know, a higher power, if you will, uh, is designed things pretty well. We, we are offered the kind of food we need for that particular season. You know, um, mm -hmm. in the winter, when there's more cold and flus, we get more citrus, which is very good to help heal with mm -hmm. that. Uh, you know, in summer, you tend to eat more lightly and more salads and tomatoes and this and that. So, you know, as, as you grow and eat with the season, you also get the variety of food that you you need, you know, your body needs. Right? True, that's a, that's a very good point. Plus, you know, you're, you're eating, f uh, you know, foods that um, are meant to be grown in that time of the year. And so they may be the healthiest. When you are growing, you know, uh, food at a time when it really wouldn't ordinarily grow in that environment or that season, you know, theoretically, perhaps the nutritional value may not be as ideal or the same. Right. And the other thing about the farmer's market is is a good point because it's fresher when it's coming straight from the farmer. Yeah. By the time you get something, I, I read recently uh, in, uh, in a book that um, green beans, for example, by the time green beans get to your plate from when they were picked, the level of vitamin C could be in the green beans could be 70% lower than if you ate it right when it was picked. Yeah. Yeah. Now for, for a couple of reasons, uh, they're not picked when they're ripe because they, they take into account the travel time. So you yeah. have uh, foods coming from, uh, let's say Chile or New Zealand or South Africa. By the time it gets to you, it's at least two weeks old. When you buy locally, not only supports your local economy, but the food is picked the same day or the night before, before they come to the market. <laughs> and typically, uh, local farmers do not use as much chemicals. And you can always ask them because they're right there. They live, you know, in the same, the same town, most likely, or the same area. So you can actually confront them with those questions. They do, do you use pesticides? What kind of pesticides do you use? So mm -hmm. you want to know typically most small farmers can afford to be USDA organic because it's such a expensive process to go through. But once you get to know the, the farmers, and I would highly recommend you go visit the farms, you know, and see how things are done. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can, uh, you know, and, and I have a couple of farms that I know personally and farmers that I, I trust to provide the right, you know, ducks and chicken and eggs and and so on, and then another farmer get my vegetables from. Uh, I trust him. I know they will do the right thing. And you eating in season, local, 
very fresh, much more uh, nutritious, and you support the local economy. What's not to like about it? Yeah. Another, another aspect of uh, that is, um, and this I learned from my microbiotic uh, classes 20 years ago, is that not only you eat in season, but you also eat locally. So, for example, if you live in Alaska, you're not going to eat food uh, that is grown in the tropics because they're not going to support you, right? Because each right. food is designed to support, to survive and to support the local environment. Um, so this is something also to consider. Um, if you live in the tropics, you're not going to eat like heavy fatty foods because, you know, it's very difficult to for your body to absorb if you don't need it for calorie purposes, you know. Obviously, an Inuit diet will be different than, uh, you know, an island in the middle of the, the ocean, mm -hmm. right? So we need to keep that in mind. Uh, also eat the food that is local because it's adapted to what we need in that particular area. Exactly. So going back to you, um, you look like a busy man. You also mm -hmm. appeared in a couple of documentaries. One is called Interconnected. Yeah. The shift, can you tell us a little bit? Yeah, Interconnected was a, a pleasure to be a part of. Um, uh, Pedram Shojai um, from well.org, uh, otherwise known as the Urban Monk, um, put together this uh, beautiful series uh, that I had the opportunity to participate in. And it's basically a, a documentary series uh, geared at educating people about the microbiome and gut health and all a variety of different factors that uh, can be involved in affecting gut health. As uh, you know, one of the only integrative gastroenterologists, I played a role in that uh, uh, capacity. There were other uh, great experts uh, like uh, Mark Hyman and uh, you know um, Dave Asprey and things like that that were uh, participating uh, in uh, this documentary series as well. I think there was like. Uh, it was maybe 45 or, or more uh, experts uh, that participated. Nice, nice. And, nice. and the, the, shift, the shift is actually a very interesting project that I recently participated in. Uh, I'm not sure exactly when it's going to be released. I believe sometime in April, so not too far from now. And uh, that is hosted by Catherine Maslin. And uh, she is a naturopath in Australia who is putting together this uh, awesome uh, audio documentary series. And she actually flew from Australia to the United States and uh, also went to England and just uh, interviewed just a whole host of people. Uh, David Perlmutter was uh, amongst that group. Um, and uh, I also participated in that uh, project as well. Uh, along with uh, several other uh, colleagues of mine and uh, just talk to us about a variety of different uh, health-related topics that can help people uh, in making the shift towards health, health and wellness. And that's where the name, The Shift, comes from. Mm. Okay. Well, um, can you tell us uh, your website information and how a uh, potential customer can connect with you? Yeah, sure. Um, my website is pretty easy to remember. It's uh, www.drmarvinsingh.com. 
So D-R-M-A-R-V-I-N-S-I-N-G-H.com. And uh, you can see some videos that I've made on there. Um, I have a blog that I post on that website and uh, a lot of links to other work that I do. Uh, I'm a member of the collective for Mind Body Green. So um, uh, that's a big health forum online that I write a lot of articles for. So you can see other articles there as well. And uh, you can also directly connect with me. My email address is there um, and the link, all my social media links are there. Um, if you want to follow me directly, uh, my social media handles are at Dr. Marvin Singh. So it's all uh, pretty easy to remember. Just remember my name and you'll get it. <laughs> all right. Well, at this point, I have to ask, are you getting enough sleep because you're doing so many things at yeah. the same time? Sleep is very important. So you have to make sure you take time uh, for yourself to sleep. Yeah, you're less productive if you don't sleep. So even if you got that last minute thing that you know that would be important to do, sometimes it's better to just wait till the morning and wake up and do it when you're fresher. That's what I found, you know, so you got to take care of yourself first. Otherwise it'll be hard to uh, take care of others. <laughs> There's a, a huge amount of information already. Um, all been very interesting. I want to circle back on one or two things to start with. Um, what would be a, a safe way or an effective way to build up um, our uh, bioresistance, as it were? A safe way is uh, to follow some of the basic principles of optimizing uh, your lifestyle. And I just recently finished reading a book on longevity, and um, I loved the the last part of the book. And uh, it basically said the key is simplicity. And mm -hmm. so sometimes it seems so oversimple. Um, like, oh, surely that can't be the key to longevity. I mean, there's got to be something more to that. But it's actually, I believe, not. I mean, if you eat healthy, you try to reduce stress uh, by meditating, uh, making yourself grounded, um, uh, doing yoga, tai chi, or whatever works for you best. You're sleeping the right amount. You're trying to be conscious about uh, toxins in the environment, in the food supply, so you avoid those. Um, you cultivate meaningful relationships. You enjoy time with family and friends. You do things for others. You practice self-compassion, compassion for others. You do all of these kind of things. And that, to me, is the key to wellness, longevity, epigenetic health, gut health, because fascinating enough as it is, all the books and all the books that I've read, all the literature that I've read, all of the conclusions come to the same place. It's mm. fascinating. You know, Elizabeth Blackburn's research on telomeres and telomerase, um, I was really excited to read that book because I thought, what is she going to say that's going to be so different for the key to longevity? Is it going to be something different that I can use? And it's the exact same stuff that we talk about for gut health. It's the exact same stuff. And so I think, you know, the, the mantra that I give in my office is that if you give your body the ingredients and tools that it needs to do the job that it wants to do, that it was born to do, it will do the best that it can under your circumstances, meaning your environment. Yeah. And I, I guess a good suite of uh, probiotics would be you know, part <laughs> of that. Yeah. Uh, probiotics can, can help um, because it's basically like you're giving yourself a little bit of a boost uh, mm. 
uh, in that in, in that uh, atmosphere. Now, you, you did mention spore-based probiotics, which seem to be a you know a new thing sweeping through the probiotic world. What's your take on those? So um, uh, they can uh, they're they're a little bit more powerful um, in that uh, you may have to kind of ease into them. Um, otherwise you may get some side effects. Mm. And so there's nothing wrong in not taking the, you know, ideal dose that's on the bottle and just slowly ramping yourself up. Um, you know, I think there's some developing uh, literature uh, in uh, their usefulness. And so I would uh, stay tuned and continue to watch the literature. And I don't um, tell people not to take them. And in fact, if somebody uh, is actually uh, sicker than the average person, I might actually encourage them to start sprinkling a little bit of the spore-based probiotics into the system. Hmm, excellent. So one thing you did say earlier was that we've got a 10% similarity between, you know, each of our different biomes. Yeah. Um, so does, does that mean that at some point, and you said it's a signature as well. So yeah, does that mean can... at some point we'll see you on CSI? Uh, you know? <laughs> yeah, now, now they'll start uh, identifying people by that. <laughs> we have a definitive match. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But is, is there a sort of a, a practical way it can be used scientifically? You know, sort of, uh, I don't know, identifying diseases or something like that? So this is what people are doing now. Uh, so mm. there is so much massive amount of information in the gut microbiome. It, and if you think about uh, all of the varieties that could occur in each separate human being, how do you create treatments or medicines for a lot of people when everybody is so different? And so this is, I think, some of the concepts that are going to uh, need to start being involved in drug and therapy development. Um, um, they're, they're, they're doing things like that now. And a lot of companies are using artificial intelligence to help sift through all the data. Because if I, if you said, tell me everything, every piece of information that my microbiome is saying about me, it would be volumes and volumes of information. You wouldn't be able to read it or understand it. I wouldn't be able to read it or understand it. Nobody would be able to, because in order to really understand what is it saying and what is it doing and what does it mean, it involves looking at all the different parts of everything. And so a lot of uh, uh, companies and a lot of uh, scientists are using artificial intelligence um, as a mechanism by which to help understand uh, what could be going on uh, and how to understand the information. And this is very rapidly evolving. I, I tell people that it's the, the race is on here in this field because it's now all about who can develop the uh, best test and best combination of tests that is the most accurate that can help people. And I think the drug companies uh, hopefully will start coming in uh, to realizing that um, their drugs may not be necessarily directly affecting the mechanism that they think entirely that the mechanism of action may be in part due at least to effects on the gut microbiome. And so studying that and studying how microbial populations shift and change and how the metabolome of the various bacterial organisms change in response to a certain uh, drug being present, that's going to be very interesting. Mm, yeah. Now, one thing I've noticed is you've been drinking from a very big cup today, <laughs> uh, mixing uh, water and it looks like some sort of infusion. Is that sort of part sure. of your personal regime to uh, keep your biome this nice, is my 
It's my favorite tea. It's my it's a jasmine green tea, organic jasmine green oh, really? tea. So that, that, if you like, was the second part of the question. You did say that uh, coffee was one of the most heavily sprayed. Um, yeah, I, I, I did. In full disclosure, I did have a, a cup of coffee before uh, we got on. And uh, <laughs> I had a cup of my favorite uh, organic um, toxin-free coffee. That was the purity coffee that I was talking about. Yes. Um, I love uh, green tea. It has so many uh, nutritional values. It's a very anti-inflammatory um, uh, herbal beverage and uh, so many uh, immune-boosting uh, uh, capabilities. And so I thought, uh, what a better setting to have a cup of green tea uh, and talking to you guys. The other cup is just water. <laughs> I have a question uh, regarding green tea. Uh, I would love to drink it, but uh, I get terrible heartburns when I drink uh, uh, even green tea. Green tea, sure. really? Yeah, and I have a history of uh, acid reflux. So, do you? Uh, is there any other? Um, the tannin is what causes it. Is uh -huh. there any other herbal uh, drink that I, I could soothe my uh, system instead of making worse? Well, uh, you know, there are a lot of different kinds of green tea. So maybe a uh, different kind of green tea, uh, you know, like matcha green tea may be a little bit strong for you. Maybe that may be more heartburn provoking. Jasmine green tea, for example, maybe the reason why I like it is it's one of the lightest green teas. Hmm. The longer you steep it, the more tannins uh, can occur as well. So, you know, maybe you steep it on the lower side just to change the flavor of the water. And you're basically, tea is just, you know, flavored water, if you think of it in that simple term. Um, and so, uh, you know, that, that, that may help. And I find, you know, it's interesting. I don't know that there's any literature to support it specifically, but I find that when you're drinking organic beverages, whether it's wine or whether it's um, tea or coffee, that the heartburn that I myself would have maybe gotten in the past, I don't get anymore. Okay. Okay. So it's, it could be about the chemical display. Could, could be about the quality of the product too. Yeah, right, right. <clears throat> and the roasting. You know, the, yeah. the, the darker they roasted, the more acidic it is, and the more acidic, the more heartburns. Exactly. So, instead, staying on the subject of drinking, does um, the level of our, our level of hydration, how much we drink, does that have a, a bearing on how, uh, how healthy our biome is? Um, the biome itself, uh, I don't know specifically as far as amount of water, but generally health. Uh, I mean, all of our cells need a lot of water and uh, we need to stay hydrated uh, during the day so that our brain can function. Uh, I think, you know, I was uh, one of the other things I was reading a while back um, was uh, talking about how your brain function is even improved if you drink more water. So, you know, you definitely have to drink uh, water and that's maybe it's a good example that I have tea and water together because tea and coffee can be dehydrating. So, yeah. um, because they end up having a diuretic type effect and make you mm. urinate more. Yeah. So <clears throat> I'm drinking water at the same time. It's uh, filtered uh, reverse osmosis water from my house uh, and also in a glass cup. So not, not in plastic. Um, yeah, exactly. And um, so uh, that uh, will also help me replete whatever I lose. Hmm. Now, I notice you also like San Pellegrino as well. 
Yeah. <laughs> we don't drink soda or, or pop, uh, but uh, that's the one thing we we drink once in a while uh, just to get a little fizz is carbonated yeah. water. It's <laughs> actually one of my favorite, um, yeah. <laughs> slightly gaseous uh, mineral waters. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just make sure to buy San Pellegrino in a glass bottle, not the plastic mm -hmm. bottle. Exactly, yeah. Okay, that's everything from me. Back to you, Alan. Okay. Uh, would you like to add anything, Marvin? No, I mean, it's been a pleasure speaking with you guys. I really enjoyed this conversation. We talked about a lot of cool different topics. Um, right. And I appreciate the opportunity to uh, come and talk to everyone about uh, gut health and the microbiome. Well, you obviously have about your subject, so thank you for sharing. And I'm going to do the closing now. I'll wait until you finish drinking. So we okay. all <laughs> So here we go. Thank you again, Marvin, for being on the Low Carb Paleo Show. And as we say in Texas, à votre santé, y'all. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's been lovely having you. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.